The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 514. One of the things that people say to me when I talk about workaholism is, well, yeah, but I I love my work. And so I'm not a workaholic. Actually, I love my work too. And I'm also a workaholic. And you can be both. Many workers believe that to compete with other top talent, you have to embrace a culture that rewards long hours and a constant connection to work. Businesses and society endorse busyness, overwork, and extreme commitment as the most valued traits in workers. Sometimes that endorsement is explicit. More often than not, though, it's an implicit contract. Either way, this workaholic behavior is unhealthy and counterproductive for workers and for organizations. And it's time to fight back. Hey there, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. If you want to achieve true success in business and in life, a great first step is to practice intentional and consistent reading, and that's what this podcast is designed to help you do more of. Our guest this week is University of Georgia professor Melissa Clark. She's author of the book Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It. I'll be asking Melissa to share about the telltale signs or characteristics of overworkers, what science says about why workaholism is so detrimental, especially to people around the workaholic, the tendencies of a workaholic and how to counteract them, and plenty more. If you'd like to surround yourself with others who are talking about these kinds of topics on an ongoing basis, then you should equip yourself with a Read to Lead Plus membership. Just last week, members got to enjoy a private chat with author Todd Henry, whose new book is called The Brave Habit, A Guide to Courageous Leadership. And we welcome in new guest experts every single month. I also lead a monthly office hours session and take questions on topics as diverse as productivity, mindset, leadership, entrepreneurship, communication, and more. You can also enjoy our library of business book summaries with new ones being added all the time exclusive articles on some of the topics I just mentioned a moment ago, not found anywhere else, and hang out with other people who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. And it's all available for just $9 a month. Is it worth it? Well, members tell me it's worth far more than that, but you don't have to take my word or their word for it. You can try it out for two weeks absolutely free. And when you do, you get access to all of our recordings from previous guest expert sessions, training sessions that I've led, our library of business book summaries, and more. To find out more, just go to jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me to start your two-week free trial of a Read to Lead Plus membership. Melissa Clark is an associate professor of industrial and organizational psychology at the University of Georgia, where she leads the Healthy Work Lab. She's one of the world's leading scholars on workaholism, overwork, burnout, and employee well-being. And in addition to serving as an expert consultant to many organizations on these issues, she and her work have been featured in outlets including the New York Times, the BBC, Time, Glamour, 
The Atlantic, HuffPost, and others. You might recall that at the beginning of this year, I published an episode featuring the nine books I'm most looking forward to in 2024. This is one of those nine books. It's called Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It. Well, Melissa, I'm excited to have you here. I don't know if you know this or not. I think you do. But at the beginning of this year, I published an episode where I listed the nine books I'm most looking forward to this year. Yours is one of those nine. And I'm so excited to have you for that reason and and so many others. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I listened to that episode and I really appreciate the, the shout out. Well, my pleasure. I want to ask you first to tell me a little bit about a couple of people mentioned in your book by the names of Alex and Evan. Yes, those are my two kids. They are my world. Uh, they're, believe it or not, both in high school now, freshman oh, wow. and a junior. Yeah, they have experienced all the workaholic tendencies of myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, were they surprised, elated, indifferent about being uh, those who you dedicated the book to? <laughs> um, I think they were Pleasantly surprised. Yeah, yeah, I think they thought it was sweet. Yeah, I relate to them a lot in the, the stories I tell in the book. So, and, and really, they are my world. So I, I love them so much. Well, let's dig into workaholism and, and overwork. And I was interested to read what you'd had to say about just that topic uh, in the intro of your book, where you talk mm-hmm. about how a lot of books have been written on this topic to individuals, but, but not much beyond that as you began to research it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, what what do you say to those who, who feel like workaholism just isn't that big of a deal or maybe is, is, is isolated to just you know, certain industries or occupations? Yeah. So, you know, I get that a lot. So I was reading this book uh, called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, uh, written by Bronnie Ware. She was uh, dealing with you know, hospice care and she wrote about what people said to her on their deathbed. And um, I would ask, you know, do you know what the number two regret of people that told her it was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we don't think it's a big deal in the moment, but when we take a step back and think about what's important to us, you know, we talked about my kids at the beginning, you know, what's really important to us, what do we want to remember at the end? You know, mm-hmm. for me, it's not, it's not my work. It's my family. It's my partner. It's my kids. And so uh, in speaking to the certain industries or occupations, I interviewed so many people for the book. There is not a single industry that there aren't workaholics. Mm. Uh, even the most random or bizarre occupations. I spoke to a, a llama barn manager who was a self-proclaimed workaholic that would not even take a, a break to go to the restroom. She would just continue to work until she finished everything on her to-do list. And in addition to her job, she wrote a book about caring for llamas that wasn't even part of her job. So, you know, even just any any occupation, you can take that to the extreme. Now, society and, and, and a lot of influencers, I think, uh, tend to perpetuate this idea that, you know, workaholism, hustle is a word I hear a lot, is, is a mm-hmm. good thing. It's what you got to do if you want to succeed. What of those who believe that, that it's actually a good thing? What, what do you say to them? Yeah, I also felt that my whole life too, mm-hmm. that I had to constantly be proving myself, taking on new challenges, not really taking a pause to smell the roses or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, the research is really clear on this. It is a myth that working longer hours is going to 
make you more productive. Mm. Uh, there's an economist. His name is John Pencobble, and he wrote a book called Diminishing Returns. And he argues that based on this uh, model, you know, you can talk about hours worked and you can talk about effective hours worked. And his model shows very conclusively that as your number of hours increases past a certain point, you actually are less productive. You have less productive time compared to the time you're spent, you're spending working. He gives it a, a concrete number. He says after about 55 hours in a week, you, you really start to, to lose productivity pretty rapidly. And someone working 70 hours a week is no more productive than someone working 55 hours per week. And I would argue even 55 hours is too much to be working, um, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a point of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of other things, too. You know, people that are workaholics, they tend to take on too much. They overextend themselves. They don't leave time to recover. If they're a leader, they're overcommitting the team, setting unrealistic deadlines, causing everyone unnecessary stress. And it's it's uh, one of the people I interviewed, Gabe, he called himself a fear machine. You know, so he was constantly leading his company under this panic and anxiety. And why didn't we do this yesterday? And this needs to be done now instead of looking at the big picture and thinking about strategy, which is you know what leaders are great at. So for many, many reasons, the data just does not pan out in terms of workaholism being related to more productivity. You mentioned some of the signs or characteristics of, of overwork. I was going to ask you a question along those lines. So thank you for, mm-hmm. for including that. You also talked a bit about the science, but what does the science say about why workaholism is so detrimental? What, what, what's the impact it's having on people's lives maybe that they don't recognize? Yeah, they, they don't. They don't recognize a lot of times. Uh, so, so for the book, you know, I draw from my personal experiences and I interviewed um, a bunch of individuals, many of which I found through the organization Workaholics Anonymous, which many people don't realize is a, is a real thing. <laughs> and a lot of people, that I spoke to basically didn't realize it was a problem until it was a devastating problem. Mm. And this could be something happened to them health-wise. You know, every single person I talked to had something health-related, whether it was a autoimmune disease, cancer, heart attack, multiple heart attacks, uh, you name it, right? So the health consequences are really pretty terrible. And, you know, our body's just not meant to be in constant fight or flight mode, which is kind of the the state that a lot of workaholics are in. You know, everything needs to be done. Everything is a crisis. Um, and your body needs to go back to baseline to be able to regulate your cortisol stress, you know, your cortisol levels and be able to to get to that baseline so you can tackle the next big stressor. But if you're always in overdrive, that's going to lead to these negative health outcomes. And it definitely affects people around them. Uh, I talked a little bit about how it can affect people at work, but uh, my research team interviewed over 50 spouses of workaholics. And I tell you, those interviews, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I sure felt like one in those interviews. It was it was really heart wrenching, you know, just talking about the effects on the marriage, on the kids. Yeah. So and oftentimes people don't realize it. They don't realize how it's affecting those around them. What what are some of the some of the methods that you write about in the book that you typically recommend for raising awareness of, mm-hmm. of workaholic tendencies, whether it's in individuals or organizations? Okay, so let's start with I guess at the individual level first. I think 
And a lot of this is drawing from my personal experiences and, and stories from the people I talk to. There's not a ton of empirical research on kind of some of these practical steps, but again, talking to individuals that are a part of Workaholics Anonymous and these these organizations, they had a lot of really good tips. And some of them are basically just self-reflection uh, to really kind of treat yourself as your own experiment. Um, oftentimes, we don't realize that work is kind of all-consuming in our lives. And so one strategy is to collect some data on yourself. Get a notebook or use your phone and set a timer for a few random times throughout the day you know, specifically most interested in after work or on the weekends when you're not supposed to be working. And when the timer goes off, reflect on in the last hour, had you been thinking about work? What were you thinking about? How were you feeling? Uh, like what were your emotions? Any physiological reactions? So one thing with workaholics is they almost tend to feel like they have to be working all the time, like they ought to be. For me, it's almost like a pit in my stomach. Like I just feel like uneasy just at rest. And so to just be enjoying a TV show and just sitting on the couch and not doing anything else to me is actually kind of uncomfortable. Um, I struggle with not also wanting to grab my laptop and uh, check email or, you know, do something work related. Uh, so if you're kind of recording your own thoughts and behaviors when you're not at work and maybe you can recognize some patterns of what you may be doing even unintentionally. So that's at the individual level. I talk a lot about things at the organizational level too. With organizations, they each have their unique culture and there are lots of signs and signals that the organization can send to employees about what is valued in that organization. Mm. And so I talk about how to basically look at organizational artifacts, which are a variety of things, such as, you know, how are new employees socialized? How are they taught the norms in the organization? I talked to one woman that when she started her new investment banking job, Someone told her if she ever needed to leave her desk to leave her purse and just take her keys if she needed to go somewhere. And the rationale was, well, everyone knows that a woman doesn't, you know, just leave work and not take her purse. And so that's it's almost like sending a signal like you can't be gone for too long. You have to just be there. Mm. And, you know, what stories are told? What are the company norms? Who gets rewarded? All sorts of things you can look at for how the organization is sending messages to the employees about what is valued. Are the people staying long hours working through the weekend? Are those the people getting promoted? And is that the rationale given for why they're being promoted? Oftentimes it is in workaholic organizations, right? Right. Uh, having spent two and a half decades in radio, that is a you know 24-7 mm -hmm. medium, and, oh, yeah. and serving in leadership positions, there could, there could be a tendency for overwork, for workaholism, and, and, and always feeling like that you, you had to be there. And, and oftentimes I was in a situation where I was on call and, and literally had to be there because we went off mm -hmm. the air or something you know, crazy like that. Right. So, so then when I left uh, about 10 and a half years ago to work for myself, those tendencies carried over in the first mm -hmm. few years. And I kind of worked you know, from sunup until well past sundown, it, it took my wife kind of tapping me on the shoulder and like you know, going, why are you choosing to work so much so often? It, right. is, is it not possible to set boundaries? And it wasn't until then that I began setting boundaries and doing things mm -hmm. like having a startup ritual 
leading into work and having a shutdown ritual that are both at specific times. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And, and then what didn't get done, there's, there's tomorrow for that. And I, right. can, I need to give the evening to, to her, to, to friends, to, to family, and to just unplug. And, and mm-hmm. the biggest change for me was understanding the importance of those set rituals at set times. Yeah. And with more people working from home, you know, oftentimes the the ritual was the commute. Right. And so a lot of people used the commute as that transition from work to home and vice versa. So what you're talking about, yeah, I mean, that's really best practices of having some sort of routine at the beginning of the day and the end of the day that's almost like your commute, even if you're not going mm-hmm. into work. So it could be walking around the block a couple times or something. What's what's your ritual? Yeah. Yeah. Mine is simply not allowing myself to do things like uh, check email or social media until 830 in the morning. Mm, I love that. That's sort of my on-ramp to then work at nine. And then typically at 430 then, I check those things again for the first time since 830 that morning. Sometimes I'll check email you know, during my lunch break and things like that. So I don't go Mm -hmm. too far without email, but I go through those same uh, checks again at 430 one last time. And that's my shutdown ritual just, just at the startup. And at the end, email, social media, those few things takes about 30 minutes to go through all that, Mm -hmm. clean out the inbox and then work starts and then do that at the end of the day. And once I'm done with that work is over. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like brushing your teeth, brush your teeth at the beginning, brush your teeth at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, let's talk about some actionable steps that we as leaders can take Mm -hmm. to fix, quote unquote, (laughs) a culture of overwork. What what can we do? Oh, yeah. Great question. You know, I think first and foremost, probably lead by example. You know, if you are, if you're a workaholic, but you genuinely want your employees to have a better balance than you do per se, it's not going to be enough to simply just tell them, hey, you know, it's okay if you want to leave early to go to your kid's soccer game or, you know, take care of this thing in the middle of the day, but you're not doing any of that yourself. If you're the first one in and the last one to leave, you're sending emails to them at 11 p.m. at night on the weekends and just really not showing them any balance at all. They're going to see that and they're going to get these mixed messages, right? And probably what they're going to do is do what you do and not what you say. Uh, So that's the first thing. But there are other things you can do as a leader. You know, breaking the cycle of responsiveness in your work team is really important. So with technology, smartphones, uh, even COVID, I would argue, exacerbated of these off-hour communication patterns that we have. And for a lot of working parents, going back to COVID, when a lot of uh, schools were shut down and you know parents were essentially homeschooling during the day, a lot of the daytime kind of got gotten eaten up by family responsibilities. And so there was a lot of communication after hours. You know, when the kids go to bed, you kind of pick work up again. Microsoft did a study and they called it the third peak of productivity. When, you know, right around 8, 9 p.m., uh, there was a, a peak mm-hmm. of, you know, people using their their platforms in the evening. And so kind of gotten these communication patterns and kind of learned some bad habits, perhaps, mm-hmm. and gotten the habit of expecting a response from people. And then as your team starts to expect a response, then you feel pressure to check your email to respond and not be the last one to join in on this thread, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we've all had that happen where we 
uh, have something busy, you know, during the day and there's, you know, come back to your email and there's like 30 emails about this one thing. And then you finally chime in at the end when everything's already taken care of, (laughs) you know, and so people try to avoid being that person. Right. And so, but if that's the norm, that's the cycle of responsiveness and it just gets worse and worse. And so if you can find ways to break that cycle by putting in some, some hard rules about connectivity and when you are and are not supposed to be responding, some companies have gone so far as to implement uh, software where it will prompt you. And I love this. I wish we had this automatically with, with ours at work. You know, it'll, it'll prompt you if you try to send an email after hours and it'll say, do you really want to send this email? Or do you want to do a schedule send instead? So kind of forcing yourself or adding these speed bumps mm. that, you know, even if you have these tendencies, you can kind of rein them back a little bit. And we can actually use technology to help us break that cycle instead of, you know, exacerbating it. And it occurs to me that I sent you an email late last night <laughs> with my list of questions. Maybe I should have scheduled that for first thing in the morning. <laughs> well, can I admit that I read that email? <laughs> so I was actually on my email. Yeah. So sometimes I'm not the best on practicing what I preach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I, it's, there are exceptions, uh, you know, occasional exceptions, uh, some necessary. Of maybe course, some, busy some times. Are. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to avoid that completely in a lot yeah. of our jobs, of yeah. course. I know uh, the leaders I've worked for and those that I have led, I've, I've always encouraged the checking email at certain times kind of a thing like we talked about earlier and, mm-hmm. and having maybe two or three set times during the day and even going so far as to making sure people are comfortable with the idea of turning off the notification batches on their phones for email or text or social media so that when they look at their phone, they don't see a bunch of numbers uh, next to apps waiting to be looked at. Yeah. I mean, having email on our smartphones, it's just so tempting, right? (laughs) To just reach over there and check it. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, I'm not perfect with this either. I still have my email on my phone. Have you been successful in, is that something you advocate for is kind of taking it completely off or just shutting off notifications? I haven't gone so far as to take it completely off, but I have found personally, and and those I've, I've worked with seem to be less tempted to check and, and find that it's easier to follow that schedule they've set if mm-hmm. those notification badges with how many messages are waiting aren't staring them in the face. Right. I mean, those are designed purposely to draw us to them. Right. Right. So, yeah, I love that. All right. I'm going to turn off my notifications because <laughs> uh, I can't go as far as taking it completely off. But yeah, I'm tempted just like everybody, uh, everybody else. Like you said, I, uh, nobody's perfect. Uh, there'll be times right. when I check and think better of it. But, uh, but that, that's helped me a great deal. In reading the conclusion of your book, you know, one point I know you were thinking and wondering if, if change in this area was even possible, that maybe this, this problem was just too big or perhaps uh, too pervasive for you to be able to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've changed your mind on that. What was it that, that changed your mind and prompted you to, to the realization this book is necessary? Yeah, it, it's, it is easy sometimes to feel overwhelmed. And I think I did start to to really feel overwhelmed after all the interviews I did because it it started to feel like how can we make a difference I'm you know just one person but then you know I started talking to people in industry change makers people in, involved in trying to really fundamentally change the way we work and I started to get encouraged by at least some progress is is definitely possible and who knows 
what we can achieve if we really, as a society, start to reevaluate what's important to us and how we want to be living our lives. So, for example, I talked to Andrew Barnes, who's the co-founder of the Four Day Week Global. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm just fascinated by that organization and all of the solid research that they have done on implementing the four day week has really convinced me it it's definitely possible to completely turn everything on its head. And, you know, I think in some cultures it's going to be there's going to be a lot more resistance, especially like here in the States. Mm. There are some companies that have shifted to things like the four-day week and, and lots of great examples in the book about companies that have done other things to encourage individuals to, to have more of a balance. And even in industries where you would think change is not possible, there have been changes made. Mm. For example, Boston Consulting Group. There were some researchers that went in. They were trying to change some things to tackle the 24-7 always-on culture. And the the project that they implemented and was successful was one night a week of no communications. They rotated that amongst the people in the team because this was an industry where you know you, you have to be available to the clients 24-7. So taking an evening to be disconnected was was terrifying to, to these individuals, right? And so you think, oh, that's such a minor change. That's a big deal. But yes, it was because what it did was it started to prove to individuals that one, they can do it. Two, their clients are not affected at all. And three, that they actually like it <laughs> and they come to appreciate it. And, you know, I think that's that's kind of where I see the change as possible, even in these really hard driving cultures is just kind of showing with some trials and even these minor changes to, to show people it can be done differently. Mm -hmm. And here's how it feels. And the world is not going to end. <laughs> <laughs> and when you say four day work week, you're not talking about 40 hours crammed into four days, just to be clear, right? Right. And that is a common misconception. So we call that a compressed work week. And it's not really that effective. It just crams your work into those four days. But no, the four-day week is about taking off eight hours of work. And so a, a full work week would be 32 hours. And it doesn't have to be four days. It could be spread however you want whatever works with your schedule. But the idea is that we don't need to be working 40 hours a week. We have all this technology that makes things so much quicker, so much easier. And now we have AI that has you know fast-tracked all of that. Right. Um, and going back to the very beginning, when I talked about productive hours versus actual hours, we don't need 40 hours. I don't know, mm. you know how long we're going to be stuck in this rut. We used to work six days a week. Mm -hmm. You know, and now we work five. So mm -hmm. why why can't we work four or three? Uh, so change has happened in the past, mm -hmm. and I think can happen in the future if we really start to think about why don't we just work when we're actually productive, and then rest when we need to rest? Because guess what? That helps us become more energized and more engaged when we do come back mm -hmm. to work. Yeah, definitely. Um, I am talking about shortening the work week. And, and not just rearranging the hours. <laughs> There's a couple of things I want to key in on with regard to that. All the research I've seen, I think most, if not all the research you've seen, has, has shown that the companies who do that, who take that step, their employees are actually more productive. Right. And this is not just 
self-report productivity. When I say the research is solid, I'm a methodologist. In the book, I drew from what I considered solid research findings using best practices. And that is kind of what they're doing. They're showing with objective data, company-wide, you know, revenue increasing at the end of the six-month trial. Mm. And, you know, like you said, employees are much more satisfied obviously reported more work-life balance. Mm. I'm trying to recall what one of the most recent trials, I think it was about a a quarter of the employees said that they would not go back to a five-day work week with any amount of money. Mm. Wow. No amount of money. They were just like, nope, this is <laughs> this is ideal. Um, <laughs> and over like almost every person in the trial wanted to continue with that model at the end of the trial. But I was really fascinated by the no amount of money. We talk about, I'm teaching motivation. I actually have a weekend class and we're talking about motivation and intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. Mm -hmm. And so it really relates to, it's not always about the money and the status. It's about working in a job that appreciates employees and recognizes their, their whole identity and not just what they can do for the organization. My other thing I wanted to ask about or key in on, and you may or may not have experience with this, but I'm thinking just from someone on the outside looking in, uh, as I watch Gen Z's response to 40-hour work weeks, if, if TikTok is any indication, and, and, and those who are often made fun of for bemoaning how work is structured uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been guilty of being on the side of making fun. And as I look at this more and more, and think back to to me and, and my younger work years and pushing envelopes and boundaries, I see them doing very much the same thing. And I've, uh, instead of making fun, I need to support them, I think. I think that if they want to blow that up even more than it's than, than you're talking about, then then maybe those of us in positions of leadership need to hear them out, I guess. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on any of that? Yeah. I mean, change is hard. We get in our patterns, right? Right. Uh, But yeah, I agree. I think, and and that is another point where I see hope. You know, is the freshmen that I teach at University of Georgia. I talk to them about these things, and overwhelmingly, you know, they're coming at me saying, "Yeah, I don't know why things are the way they are." You know, I definitely see some some hints of change, and Mm. I think that is encouraging. Uh, At the same time, I also to be honest, worry a little bit because that generation is even more tied to technology. And right. as we talked about, technology can exacerbate. So, yeah. you know, I think that's just something else to consider. But but right. in terms of the value of what makes a successful life, you know, it's not that that generation doesn't value hard work. Right. I think it's more about just that and all these other things. Yeah. And I think some of it too is their realization, and this is just my opinion, of the brokenness of saving your later years, your winter years, if you you will, for doing the stuff you ultimately want to do and spending all the good years putting money in somebody else's pocket your entire life <laughs> working for someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're, they're coming to the realization that that there's a there may be a better way or if there isn't, they need to create one. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. One of my big hobbies is travel. Mm-hmm. And I'm really keen on trying to travel frugally, I guess you could say. Yeah. And uh stumbled upon all that through the the fire movement. And so, you know, I see these younger generations with the financial independence, retire early mindset, um, yeah. integrating that with, you know, why don't we do more travel and things we want to do when we're when we're younger 
and do all the things I wish I did with investing when they're <laughs> when they're younger so they can have that money later. I love that. And I'm trying to instill that in my kids, you know, just this idea of start saving early and, you know, you don't need to wait and you shouldn't wait until you're done working to be able to do all these great things. And again, it goes back to why do we need a 40 hour work week? Why do we need to work throughout the whole year with a week or two vacation? You know, why don't we have a holiday like many European countries? So if we had more of that, we could integrate things like travel and just rest time and explore our passions instead of having work be the focus all the time. And if there's any silver lining in COVID, maybe it's something you talked briefly about before. Maybe it's more people realizing that their work can be done anywhere. Mm-hmm. And maybe yes. maybe for me, that means buying an RV <laughs> and working yes. from anywhere. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, that is that is a silver lining. I think it did really make people reflect on what's important to them mm-hmm. and also showed a lot of people and companies that work can be done anywhere. Although, unfortunately, a lot of companies are forgetting that. Or reneging on that promise. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. not a fan of that by the way. Um, yeah, because we, we can work anywhere and, you know, why don't we do everything at the same time? You know, if I wasn't having to be in Athens to teach or have my kids in school, I would do that. Of course I would travel around the world and, and write books and write articles. And to me, it sounds great. So kudos to, to people that can make that work. Yeah. Well, let me ask, what haven't I asked you about with regard to your book, Melissa, that Mm. you want to make sure people know or walk away with? Anything? Well, there is one thing. I think one of the big things that people say to me when I talk about workaholism is, well, yeah, but I I love my work. And Mm. so I'm not a workaholic. (laughs) And I would say, well, actually, I love my work, too. And I'm also a workaholic and you can be both, Mm. Uh, you know, loving your work. That is the essence of work engagement, right? That's what organizations want to foster. It's driven by intrinsic motivation or the love of what you do. And that's a great thing. It's been linked to positive outcomes, uh, productivity, creativity, you name it. But by the way, anything to the extreme can be a negative. And so you can be intrinsically motivated, but also maybe even due to that intrinsic motivation, kind of get all consumed by what you do and develop some of these kind of workaholic tendencies. And one way to think about it is, you know, what are you doing outside of work? One thing with work engagement is you can be really engaged at work, but you are okay with kind of letting things go at the end of the day. You know, I'll pick this up tomorrow. But people with workaholic tendencies kind of can't do that very well. They'll find themselves working, you know, in front of the TV at night or at the dinner table or thinking about work or stressing about work, feeling anxious because they're not getting this done and energy spent outside of work that's still about work. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, you can you can love your work and you can be engaged at work, but if you find yourself also thinking about work and constantly working outside of work as well, that means you have a mix of both and it's not an either or. And the positive effects of work engagement, they don't wash out the negative effects of workaholism. 
Mm. Um, it's it's mm. still a negative, a net negative, I guess you could say. Yeah. Well, let me ask, what books are you reading or have read that maybe have had a profound impact on your thinking or your career, personal life? Anything come to mind with regard to what you read? Yeah. So as a professor and a researcher, I find myself not physically reading for fun anymore. I listen to books now, yeah. you know, Audible and I force myself to listen to non-work related books, things that have impacted my career. So in researching or um, never not working, a couple of the books that really stood out to me were Celeste Headley and she wrote Do Nothing. Yes. Loved that book. Uh, the Four Day Week. I already mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, that book is great. But also uh, Bridget Schulte, she wrote this book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love and Play When No One Has the Time. Mm-hmm. This is uh, written a few years ago. Now she has a new book coming. I'm really excited Mm -hmm. to read that. But this really spoke to me as a career-driven mom. It is just, it really, really spoke to me. We read this in a a book club and it's so solidly researched. Uh, Bridget is one of the reasons that I wrote this book, actually. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we connected through a podcast of hers and, you know, the rest is history, I guess you could say. But. But yeah, that book is great, especially if you're uh, a woman or or a man that has kids and um, wants to have a fulfilled family life and a career and feeling the pressures of both, you know, how to manage your time. So those were some books that really stood out to me. Uh, great recommendations. And we've had Celeste on the show twice. Oh, awesome. I'll have to listen to those. Finally, I want to ask about your your personal knowledge management practices as a researcher, as someone who's writing books. Uh, you sp- plural there purposely. We'd love to see more from you in the future. How do you best manage your personal knowledge such that the things that you learn, that you find fascinating, that you want to use in your own work, don't get get lost? What do you do? Uh, Full disclosure, I'm terrible at this. (laughs) I need to learn from you. (laughs) Don't be too hard on yourself. But I I do have a lot of guests who start off by saying that very thing. Oh, man. I mean, it is a problem. I have random notebooks Mm -hmm. everywhere. And so I, you know, I tend to write stuff down. But the problem is I, I, I write them down and then I forget what notebook it's in. <laughs> right. um, so Been there, yeah, it, you, you should see the method to my madness when I was writing this book. It was like the table just had papers everywhere. I don't really have any great suggestions for that. <laughs> and then for some people though, that just in the way their brain works, that, that works for them. And, and maybe you realize, I don't know, you can tell me that, that maybe you feel deep down there's a better way that might work better for you. But obviously, that's working to some degree. I mean, it didn't stop you from writing a book. It, it's not stopped yeah, you from becoming a professor. It's it's you've still accomplished some pretty awesome things. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't work off things like outlines and and mm-hmm. whatnot when I write. It's just not for me. I do a lot better with kind of random thought here, random thought here. Arrange them all on the table, these pieces of paper, and then like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, I guess that's my crazy way of writing. So it works for me. Do you find that with, say, those papers strewn about the table, mm-hmm. you start seeing maybe connections that you wouldn't have otherwise seen? Maybe a new idea collides with an existing idea and suddenly something new mm-hmm. happens out of it? Yeah, exactly. It's something about rearranging physically um, and kind of forming these little clusters of commonalities between these points and making connections. Yeah. In in physical space. That's the key. Yeah, in physical yeah. space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, her book, again, is called Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It. And her name is Melissa Clark. 
Melissa, I'm delighted to have included this on my list of nine books you must read this year. I think it's uh, definitely worthy of of the cut uh, after having read it. And I appreciate you being here and thank you so much for your time. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. How many people do you know who might benefit from a book like this? Make a list and point them to this episode so they can learn what you've learned today from Melissa. To connect with Melissa online and to check out the links and resources we talked about, including the books that Melissa recommended, you can go to the show notes page for this episode, and that is found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 514 for episode 514. Again, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 514. Don't forget to check into a Read to Lead Plus membership. Try it before you buy it, if you will, when you go to jeffbrown.me and sign up for a free two-week trial. You get access to all our past recordings, our library of book summaries, and more. If you decide to stick around beyond two weeks, it's then just $9 a month. Again, it's jeffbrown.me. Thank you for checking out this week's episode. I hope you'll come back next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh, 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 oh